Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. I had a summer full of weddings, mountain hikes, an amazing online course on dragons, and a lot of quiet days of sweltering humidity, humming cicadas, and long golden hours. I threw myself into the first season of this podcast, so reading, researching, recording, and editing took up a lot of my time, and it was great. But towards the end, I found that releasing one episode per week is doable, but it really doesn't give me enough thinking and researching time to feel that I've done the fairy tale justice. So for season two, I'm planning to release episodes every two weeks instead. I wanted to start season two of the podcast with one of my favorite fairy tales, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. It's a little early in the season for snow, but I released a Mother Frost episode right in the middle of July, so I might as well continue focusing on fairy tales regardless of the season. Also, this one does begin in autumn, so so that part fits. First, I'll give some basic background on the tale itself and read my own iteration of it. Then I'll talk about a few of the images and how a Christian artist could retell them in the light of scripture, or looking to the Bible to determine right and wrong, beauty and virtue. We'll look at four images, compass directions, the unseen guest, the four winds, and the trolls. East of the Sun, West of the Moon is a northern, wintry grandchild of the literary fairy tale Cupid and Psyche. Cupid and Psyche was written by Apuleius in the 2nd century. According to the Oxford Companion of Fairy Tales, this variant was collected by two Norwegian folktale collectors, Peter Christian Asbjornsson and Jorgen Moe. Asbjornsson and Moe were inspired by the folklore collection of the Brothers Grimm in Germany, and they wanted to do a similar great work in Norway. Sir George Webb Dacent, an English writer, translated many of their stories into a book called Popular Tales from the Norse in 1859. Here's my own iteration of this tale. Um, I relied especially on the Gutenberg version, but this is written in my own words. East of the Sun, West of the Moon Once upon a time, there was a family with so many children, there was never enough bread for them all. The youngest daughter had such beauty that there was no end to her loveliness. One stormy autumn night, a white bear came to the door. If you give me your youngest daughter, he said, I will make your house overflow with riches. I will return in one week for your answer. The youngest daughter was reluctant, but her father persuaded her so earnestly that she agreed. When the white bear returned, she gathered up a small bundle of her possessions and climbed on his back. They traveled for a long, long way over snow and under stars. Finally, they came to a magnificent castle and a mountain. Everything inside gleamed with gold and silver, and servants fulfilled every need. The girl spent each day with the white bear. At night, a man came to her room and lay beside her without touching her or saying a word. In the morning, he was gone and she never saw his face. After a while, the girl grew homesick. I will take you home to visit your family, said the white bear, but you must promise that if your mother tries to draw you into a private conversation, you will refuse her. The girl promised and the bear carried her home. Her family was overjoyed to see her, but her mother kept trying to draw her aside to speak with her in private. At last, her mother succeeded and persuaded her daughter to tell her everything that took place at the castle. 
Her mother was dismayed when she found that a man came to her daughter's room each night whom her daughter never saw. But he might be a troll waiting to devour you, said her mother. Here, take this candle and flint and hide them among your belongings. Next night, wait until he comes and falls asleep, and then light the candle so you can see his face. But take care that no wax drips on him, or he will wake. When the white bear came, the girl climbed on his back, and they returned to the castle in the mountain. She waited for several nights, unsure of whether to obey her mother's instructions, but finally curiosity overcame her. She waited for the man to fall asleep, and then lit her hidden candle and let its light fall on his face. He was the most handsome of the sons of men. She fell in love with him instantly, but as she gazed on him, some hot wax from the candle dripped on his shirt, and he awoke. "'What have you done?' he cried. "'I am the white bear. My stepmother cursed me. If I could persuade a maiden to come live with me and by her own free will stay with me as a white bear by day and a man she never saw by night for a whole year, the curse would break. Only one more month of the year remained.' Now I must go and marry my stepmother's daughter, a troll princess with a nose three ells long. But what can I do? cried the maiden. They will take me to the castle that is east of the sun and west of the moon, he said. Suddenly, the castle and the mountain and everything in it disappeared. The girl found herself in a meadow with only the small bundle of her belongings beside her. She sank down and wept. After a while, she rose. I will seek this castle east of the sun and west of the moon and find him and rescue him, she resolved. She traveled a long, weary way until she found an old woman carding with a golden carding comb. Mother, can you tell me where I can find the castle that is east of the sun and west of the moon, she asked. I cannot, said the old woman, but my sister, who is older and wiser than I, may. Travel this way until you find her. Here, take this golden carding comb. It may help you. The girl traveled a long, weary way until she found a woman older than the first, spinning with a golden spindle. "'Mother, can you tell me where I can find the castle that is east of the sun and west of the moon?' she asked. "'I cannot,' said the older woman. "'But my sister, who is oldest and wisest, may. Travel this way until you find her. Here, take this golden spindle. It may help you.' The girl traveled a long, weary way until she found a woman older than the two sisters. She repeated her question as before. I do not know where this castle is, said the woman, but you could ask the east wind when he comes this way. Here, take this golden apple. It may help you. The girl waited until the east wind came by. When he blew on her, she hailed him and asked, Can you tell me how to find the castle that is east of the sun and west of the moon? I cannot, said the east wind, but I can take you to my brother, the west wind, who roams farther than I. Perhaps he can tell you. The east wind carried her to the west wind, and she repeated her question as before. I cannot, said the west wind, but I can take you to our brother, the south wind, who roams farther than I. Perhaps he can tell you. The west wind carried her to the south wind, and she repeated her question as before. I cannot, said the south wind, but I can take you to our brother, the north wind, the oldest and strongest of us. Perhaps he can tell you. The south wind carried her to the north wind, who blew with such strength and cold that she was nearly frozen. I know the castle east of the sun and west of the moon, he said. I blew an aspen leaf there once, and it took me so many days, I was too weary to move or speak for a long while. But I will take you there, if you ask me. The girl asked him to carry her there. The north wind blew her over the raging sea and icy lands, so swiftly and fiercely that she nearly perished. After many days, they reached the castle east of the sun and west of the moon. Exhausted, the north wind remained there for a long while to rest his wings.
The girl approached the castle, where the trolls and the human captives they had enslaved were preparing for the wedding of the troll princess and the captured prince. She tried to find a way to see her beloved, but could not. Finally, she took the golden carding comb outside the troll princess's window and began to card with it. The troll princess saw her and opened the window. What will you give me in return for that golden carding comb? She asked. Let me sleep a night in your bridegroom's chamber, said the girl. The troll princess agreed, but gave the prince a sleeping draft so that he would not wake. That night, the girl pleaded with her prince to wake. I wandered far and wide and rode the four winds to find you, she said. Will you not wake for me? But he stayed fast asleep. The next day, the girl had to give up the golden carding comb. She set up the golden spindle outside the troll prince's window. The troll princess saw her and made the same bargain as before, but gave the prince another sleeping draft. The girl pleaded with him to wake, but he could not. The next morning, the girl played with the golden apple outside the princess's window. They made the same bargain as before, and the troll princess planned to cheat her as twice before. But some of the human captives who slept in the chamber next to the princess asked him, What was the singing and crying coming from your room the past two nights? He grew suspicious and threw away the sleeping draft secretly instead of drinking it. That night, the girl came to his room as before. I wandered far and wide and rode the four winds to find you, she said. Will you not wake for me? I will wake for you, he said. They rejoiced to have found each other and made a plan to escape the troll princess the next day, the wedding day. On the wedding day, the prince and the troll princess were arrayed in their finery, but just before they had made their vows, the prince spoke. It is the custom in my country to ask the bride to perform a task for her husband before they marry, he said. Princess, will you wash the stains from this shirt for me? He produced the shirt he had worn on the night the girl looked at him by candlelight, which she had stained with candle wax. The troll princess would have refused, but could not in front of her guests. She called for a tub of water and a washboard, but when she dipped the shirt in the water, it turned black, and her scrubbing only made it blacker. Can anyone perform this task? asked the prince. The girl stepped forward from the crowd. I can wash it, she said. She took the shirt and dipped it in the water, and it came out white as snow. The troll princess and her companions were so furious they burst from rage. The girl and the prince gathered up the human captives and fled from the castle east of the sun and west of the moon. They returned to the green country of the girl's birth, where they married and lived happily until the end of their days. There is so much to discuss here. As I said, I'll talk about compass directions, the unseen guest, the four winds, and the trolls. First, compass directions, or just the north, south, east, west aspect of the tale. As a child, I remember staring at this title for a long time, just dreaming about what that could possibly mean. What is east of the sun, the sun rises in the east, and west of the moon, the moon sets in the west. The work that Wondering did in me would make a really good case study in an argument for the benefits of fairy tales. A few authors have interpreted this to be a clue that the castle is in the far north, the land of the midnight sun, which is consistent with the tale. I can't fully grasp what this title means poetically and spiritually, but I feel in it an atmosphere of vastness, loneliness, farawayness, yearning, some mysterious place that is utterly remote and nearly impossible to get to. 
The theme of going beyond borders and to extremes is central to this tale. The children, who are too many for the household. The youngest daughter, who has no end to her loveliness. The father, who is promised overflowing riches. And the distance to the castle that is so great that even the great north wind is exhausted getting there. Compass directions are a fascinating study in scripture because geography matters. For example, Eden was in the east. The tabernacle and temple passages have a lot of compass directions. For this section of my study, I decided to look especially at verses that discuss multiple directions at once, uh, mainly to narrow it down because there are a lot in scripture. So I found Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. This passage is part of God's promise to Jacob. Isaiah is a jungle of a book with very stern warnings of judgment, calls to repentance, and then vibrant descriptions of the bounty of God's goodness and forgiveness. So Isaiah 43, 6-7, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I also found Luke 13, 28-29, The Lord Jesus has been telling parables, giving signs, and teaching about the kingdom of God, and this description is part of a warning to his Jewish audience that when the master of the house shuts the door, many will seek to enter and not be able. So 13, 28-29, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. I love how these earthly measurements or means of navigation witness to eternal realities. East and west, north and south stand for places that are far away, which makes it all the more glorious when God reaches all of them. Both passages center on the idea of people being gathered back together from great distances. So how would compass directions matter in a retelling? I think this is a great example of how to use your earthly artwork to mirror eternal reality. In the places of your story that suggest vastness or infinity, use concrete, tangible images to convey the intangible. For example, just with the title of this tale, comparatives seem to be very effective, east of the sun, west of the moon. Lengthening the narrative and showing greatness by degrees, such as three progressively older and wiser women, and then the progressively stronger winds, is also a really neat way to image enormity. Geographical images like edges, borders, cliffs, and shorelines tend to show up a lot in stories where characters approach a beyond or an elsewhere. Think about C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader at the end. The children see a great wave on the eastern edge of the world, and beyond it is a range of mountains. And he says, it was so high that either they never saw the top of it or they forgot it. None of them remember seeing any sky in that direction. Lewis builds this image of eternal bliss and endless adventure using concrete details like the wave, the color of the wave, uh, the height of the mountains, and an indescribable smell brought by a breeze. He's a real master of concrete details in these cases. So use earthly measurements to mirror eternal realities. Second image, the unseen guest. I had a moment of awkwardness here in reviewing this tale. What do we do with the fact that this tale has a young woman who has an unknown man visit her room every night who she doesn't see? I, it makes me somewhat uncomfortable to point that out, but, but there it is. 
A fairy tale is heavily symbolic and archetypal, and I think this story is making it clear that this visitor is not meant to be threatening. But when you're translating a fairy tale into the medium of a novel, short story, play, musical, poem, or whatever form you're going into, you'll just need to figure out how you want to represent this. Is there a way to retell this fairy tale, especially if you're retelling to an audience of young children or young teens, which is very popular for this fairy tale, to keep the beauty of the images while keeping everything wholesome? A simple solution would just be to cut this part out. But this part of the fairy tale is very important. The breaking of the prohibition is an essential plot point, and that image of a young woman standing over a sleeping man in the candlelight is iconic. So what do you do with this? I wanted to talk about this because I think it's a good chance to explore how scripture helps us handle ethically interesting or sometimes uncomfortable topics with wisdom and discernment. If scripture is the standard for truth and beauty, for what is good, for what is lovely, I think you can retell a tale without crushing its spirit, disturbing your audience, or making anything wrong seem right, even in those stranger tales that have weird, uncomfortable, or gruesome aspects. My suggestion, if you're retelling a fairy tale and have to figure out how to deal with an uncomfortable part, uh, I would ask a few questions. What purpose does this part serve in the tale? Is an aspect of suffering or judgment that's necessary to the plot? And if it's not, you might be able to just cut it out without losing anything. If it is necessary, you might be able to find a way to convey the overall action, the, the symbolic archetypal function that's going on using different means. For example, most Cinderella retellings leave out the part at the end uh, of the grim version where birds pluck out the wicked stepfamily's eyes. It's, it's too gruesome. But they'll have the stepfamily punished in some way, such as becoming servants themselves. They keep the just retribution, but they make it more palatable. A core principle is that I don't think you should have to knock out a load-bearing wall. The best fairy tales are structured very neatly, and that's part of their beauty. If you just cut something out without doing something else to preserve the unity, you might lose the beauty that drew you to the tale in the first place. Another technique is to look at variants of the tale and how other storytellers have handled this. So I went to the Arn Thompson Uther Folklore Index, which categorizes fairy tales based on certain motifs or archetypes or functions. And I looked at East of the Sun, West of the Moon. So it's type ATU425A, if you know how that works. And I just read through a bunch of variants which was fascinating. Some of them are a lot weirder than this, and some of them are lovely. I did find that in many variants, the girl is already married to this man, and they love each other. So the night scenes are not a problem in the same way. The mystery is that she never sees her beloved husband. So one way to handle this part in a retelling is just have them be married and love each other. But she breaks the prohibition because she wants to see her husband. Cupid and Psyche works this way, and I know of at least one other modern retelling that does this, and and it worked. In some tales, the husband is a shape changer into a bear, wolf, seal, snake, or dog, and each night he lays his animal skin in a different room so that he's in human form. They visit the girl's home together, the girl's parents come in, see that he's human, and then they go and throw his animal skin in the fire so he can't change back. And that action, throwing the animal skin in the fire, is what breaks the spell and makes him have to leave. So that could be an interesting way to do a retelling. Third option. If you're looking at a fairy tale that has a disturbing element, just know that you don't have to retell every single fairy tale. If it has a gross, ethically questionable, or violent aspect that's integral to the story, 
you can go and tell a brand new story that has echoes of the original fairy tale. It just wouldn't be a strict retelling, and, and I think that's fine. I'll probably never retell Bluebeard for that reason. The violence is integral to the tale. But I could use the Forbidden Chamber motif in a different story. It just wouldn't be retelling. In summary, my recommendations, if you're trying to decide how to retell a scene that's weird or awkward or gross or violent or has an ethical issue, first determine what role that part of the story plays in the plot. Maybe look at some variants, see if you can keep the narrative unity, but convey that plot point in a different way. And, or or, your brand new story does not have to be a strict retelling. Just pick the motifs you like and weave them together into a new unity. For me, after pondering for a while, I think that if I retold East of the Sun, West of the Moon, I would keep this part. The breaking of the prohibition, like Eve taking the forbidden fruit, is central to the story. And it's supposed to be weird. It's not normalizing or celebrating anything wrong or unwise. I would work to describe it in such a way to preserve the strangeness, but I would work to make sure this is not fully creepy or threatening. So, those are a few ways to handle a difficult part of a fairy tale. Third image, the four winds, which is such a great opportunity for character development and world building. Wind is such an important image in scripture that I wanted to spend some more time with it. So here are some themes I found. First, the winds are sent by God. Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Psalm 104.4 is a hymn of praise to God as creator and provider, as the one who sent and ended the great flood. And it says, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So those are only a couple of examples, but winds are sent by God. Second, the wind, especially the east wind, as a special agent of God's destruction. There are a lot of mentions of the wicked and rebellious being like chaff before the wind. For example, Psalm 35.5, the psalmist is calling on God to contend with those who contend with him. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. There are 18 mentions of the east wind, by word search, and all of them are destructive. The east wind scorches, withers, scatters, and wrecks things, from crops to people to ships on the sea. For example, Hosea 13:15. This is in the middle of a prophecy about Ephraim, the unwise son who is full of iniquity in Israel. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. I wanted to take a look at that, the east wind, the wind of the Lord. So I looked in William MacDonald's Believer's Bible Commentary, my favorite commentary. William MacDonald says that this east wind, at least in this verse, Hosea 13:15, is figuratively the nation of Assyria, which comes to destroy Israel and carry its people off into captivity. Third, striving after wind is an image of futility. Ecclesiastes uses that over and over. Fourth, winds as breath and life. Ezekiel 37, 9, Ezekiel stands in a valley of dry bones and he prophesies over them so they begin to come together and regain flesh. Then he, the Lord, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. This is a good time to note that the Hebrew word 
ruach, um, which I'm not pronouncing right, means breath, wind, or spirit. So translators have to figure out which one of those English words to use for that one word when it comes up. Fifth, wind associated with or an analogy for the Holy Spirit. In John 3, the Lord Jesus is speaking of rebirth into the kingdom of God to the teacher, Nicodemus. So verse 8, the Lord Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, uh, the resurrected Lord Jesus has ascended to heaven. But before he went, he told his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father and that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 2, 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in all of these mentions, I'm getting a sense of power, change, catastrophe, uh, rebirth as well. A wind scatters bad things and it revives good or forgiven things. It's associated with spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and with the breath of life. When it comes to fairy tale retellings, looking at the four winds, I'm reminded of a lecture I, I heard at Labrie Fellowship a few years ago. Ben Keyes explained the doctrine of natural theology which is a very long and complex debate in church history, but I thought he did a really great job of summarizing and explaining it. So according to him, having read through a lot of the debate, he said it's, quote, knowledge of God based on observed facts and experience apart from divine revelation. He gives a really good overview of the conversation around how we can discern the truths of the Christian faith by looking at the natural world. And one of his conclusions was just so simple and so helpful. So referencing the words of St. Francis, St. Augustine, and Francis Bacon, Ben Keyes presented a metaphor. We, believers, have the book of words, scripture, which is written in human language and is special revelation. And then we have the book of works, creation itself. His point was that you need to hold on to both books at once to know God. And I'm paraphrasing. He explained this really, really well. Because the Bible, the book of words, assumes you have a knowledge of creation, the book of works, when it gives us metaphors like the vine and the branches. And also, creation, the book of works itself, does not directly tell us everything we need to know about God. So he argued, quote, Neither the Bible nor creation can be read and interpreted without the other, using scripture to illuminate and interpret creation, looking to creation to illuminate scripture. In a fairy tale retelling, when you explore natural phenomena like the four winds, maybe just think about how scripture assumes a knowledge of creation, researching winds and how they work, like the fierce mistral of France or the warm Chinook of Canada, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Um, and this is a really great source of inspiration for you. So reading the book of works by researching how wind works in creation helps you appreciate the book of words representation of winds as agents of transformation, destruction, judgment, deliverance, and rebirth as you create a world in which the winds are characters. Fourth image, the villains of the tale, the trolls. And looking at this image, I went to C.S. Lewis's essay on stories. To be honest, I struggle with a lot of Lewis's nonfiction. He uses great analogies and he's so wise, but I tend to get lost in the middle of many of his arguments. 
This one, however, has stuck with me. He's talking about the atmosphere or emotional landscape of stories. So he says, quote, Even in real life, different kinds of danger produce different kinds of fear. There is a fear which is twin sister to awe, such as a man in wartime feels when he first comes within sound of the guns. There is a fear which is twin sister to disgust, such as a man feels on finding a snake or scorpion in his bedroom. Their taut, quivering fears, for one split second hardly distinguishable from a kind of pleasurable thrill that a man may feel on a dangerous horse or a dangerous sea, and again, dead, squashed, flattened, numbing fears, as when we think we have cancer or cholera, end quote. And he goes on to use the story of Jack the Giant Killer as an example. Quote, the whole quality of the imaginative response is determined by the fact that the enemies are giants. That heaviness, that monstrosity, that uncouthness hangs over the whole thing. The intolerable pressure, the sense of something older, wilder, and more earthy than humanity. End quote. I quoted from this essay because I think Lewis is capturing something about the feel of a story that is so special if you get it right. Stories are not just a playground of abstract ideas, but the best ones carry a quality of atmosphere that brings you to another world and another life. They're thick. So if giants have this sense of heaviness, monstrosity, uncouthness, something older, wilder, and more earthy than humanity, what do trolls have? Just within the fairy tale itself, we're given the details that the troll princess has an unnaturally long nose. She and her stepmother keep human captives. They live far away from human habitation. They want precious man-made things like the golden carding comb, spindle, and apple. They cannot perform the domestic task of washing the shirt, and they're capable of self-destructive rage. All of these things are threads you can follow as you build out these characters and how they influence the atmosphere. There's one detail about trolls uh, from Norse mythology that's just so rich, I, I can't leave it out. As you probably remember from The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, legend says that trolls turn to stone when exposed to sunlight. This reminds me of Ezekiel. So chapter 11, verse 19, God describes the day when he restores the exiles of Israel to their land and relationship with him. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. It's so interesting to me that this tale involves the four winds, winds being somehow associated with the Holy Spirit and with life, and creatures that can turn to stone, a kind of death, when exposed to the light. Those images fit together really well. When you're creating atmosphere, your villain, whether it's troll or giant or snake or serpent or, or, or whatever it's going to be, are facets of evil. You decide how that evil looks and feels and smells, how dark it is, maybe depending on the age group you're writing for or creating for, and in what way good conquers it. So those are some thoughts on retelling East of the Sun, West of the Moon, focusing on compass directions, the unseen guest, the four winds, and the trolls. Join next time to talk more about retelling fairy tales according to the truth and beauty of the Bible. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review, as that will help others find it too.